0: Thanks very much. Uh, well, good afternoon, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest History Hour Head School. Um, the last one actually was, was uh, last night in Belfast. You know, I feel like a show band, you know. I, I, I don't just go from to the next town. I have to go to the far end of the country. Um, now, to, 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 this afternoon, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the Irish Revolution, local or global, question mark. Now, the runaway success of the Atlas of the Irish Revolution and the parallel TV documentary... And the proliferation of micro-studies of the War of Independence and Civil War seems to bear out the adage that, like politics, all history is local. But is it? Do we risk risk losing sight of the bigger picture, of a world torn apart by war, revolution and state formation? Uh, What, for example, can either approach tell us about the particular uh, abuse and violence directed at women? Hitherto ignored in Ireland. So, to discuss these and related matters, uh, we have uh, on the far left uh, John Borgonovo. John, of course, is one of the uh, contributors to the um, the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. And beside me here, uh, Linda Connolly. And to my right, uh, Dara Gannon and Fergal McGarry. And, of course, uh, Fergal and Dara uh, were very much involved in the latest History Ireland uh, production. This is the third of our decade of of centenary-related supplements. Now, when people ask me, like, what is the ambition of History Ireland, I always replied, world domination. And uh, uh, the the Irish Revolution, 1919-21, to a global history, we're well on the way. Um, Now, just to get us started, John... um, I think just it, it just so happens that earlier this year, uh, David Fitzpatrick, mm. Trinity College, passed away, uh, and of course his first major work was way back in nineteen seventy-seven. His uh, I've forgotten the title of it now, but the, the politics it was, uh, and politics and society, nineteen thirteen to nineteen twenty-one, which is a, a local study of the, 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 the revolutionary period in County Clare. Mm-hmm. So maybe just if you just talk to us a little bit about how scholarship uh, developed since that time.
1: Yeah. So. I mean, Fitzpatrick's article was, or article, sorry, his book was a landmark. It was kind of um, the first Irish, kind of, even though he, he wasn't Irish, uh, it was kind of of Ireland uh, as a study, uh, looking at it from, kind of from the ground up, looking at the revolutionary period. Uh, and he brought in you know, kind of class, he brought in land, he brought in uh, different aspects of the revolutionary period from that kind of micro-level up from the lo- local up. And that influenced uh, a series of, uh, of other kind of early landmark studies. Uh, Peter Hart's The Irish and His Enemies, uh, Joost Augustine's book on, um, on mayo, and he kind of did a comparative stuff. And so it's a lot of that early scholarship w- used this local study uh, model, which is a good way of getting your head around it. So one of the things about Revolutionary Ireland, f- for people who've studied it, is that there is no—it's there was no real kind of it was a decentralized revolution. So events, there wasn't one person driving the revolution. It wasn't a Dublin-focused or controlled uh, 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 result. It was all these little episodes in a in a small local. Uh, environment, And so it's only by understanding that local that you get a kind of get a national picture it starts to emerge. And it's only been through a whole series of these local studies that we've started to see some of the differences, different manifestations, different uh, focuses, you know, whether it's on, you know, there's more agrarianism and conduct. Uh, there's a lot more labor agitation in places like Waterford. Uh, there's a lot more violent stuff down here in, in Munster. Uh, there's sectarian violence in, in Ulster. And it's all these kind of different um, revolutionary experiences that make up the whole.
0: Now, what, what sort of developments have there been in sources since the, the Fitzpatrick's original book?
1: I mean, the, the, the big, the, the kind of the massive releases, well, the British records have always been quite good. Uh, and, you know, they have also invested heavily in their national archives in Q. Uh, The In terms of the Irish sources, the big kind of breakthroughs have been the release of the Bureau of Military History, which was an oral history project which took about 1,800 statements from IRA veterans. Uh, and that was been made digitized and searchable, which made it a lot easier to use. And then now more recently, we've had the Military Service Pension Collection, which are files relating to about... Seventy or 80,000 applicants for military pensions, coming among activists, IRA activists, FINA, Aaron activists, and a, a bunch of related material around those pension applications. And that's a, a trove of, and we're only starting to really tip into that right now.
0: Can just just explain that for uh, any kind of non, non-academic people here? I mean, the, the military pension, basically, this was people applying for money from the government, right? So you had to outline great detail you know who you shot at, from where, which house you 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 uh, got, got you know you stayed in. You know, so it, it's quite solid information. Whereas the, the the military bureau stuff are memoirs written twenty years later. Well,
1: they're are they? interviews.
0: Right, right. I mean, I
1: mean, the the, 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 mil- the, the bureau stuff is it, some of it's ropey, but some of it's it, you know some of it's pretty diligent. You know, they were being interviewed by people as an oral history project, basically. The 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 military service pension uh, uh, material. It's not just the individual applications. You have supporting letters, you have brigade activity reports, you have brigade organization reports. We have a membership list for everybody who's involved in the IRA and for about probably about 80% of members that come and on. Just like that kind of information, which is extraordinary. So
0: it's pretty solid stuff.
1: It's so, it's solid stuff. Yeah. It was also produced in the nineteen in the early nineteen thirties, so when this was still a relatively recent past. Um, yeah.
0: Didn't uh, uh, David Fitzpatrick then also interview people in a lot of oral history in, in his book? Yeah,
1: he conducted some some interviews as well. You know, those were fifty years after events. Okay. You know, people people who do oral history would that's so. You, you know, you, I, I I've I interviewed people. I don't know, Fergal, did you ever interview anybody who was. Uh, I interviewed probably five or six people who were involved in the IRA in the War of Independence in the 90s. Was that a new approach at the time, though, John? What's
0: that? That thing of doing oral history. Was that new at the time, the the method, I mean?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it was was at the the cutting edge of, of kind of modern scholarship. I mean, I think with Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick is really the real modern, he's a modern scholar in a lot of ways, which is why he had such a, a knock-on effect, not just in studies of Revolutionary Ireland, but studies of immigration. Uh, he's you know—he's really important in the, in the Irish understanding of the First World War. Uh, mm-hmm. And so all those kind of efforts, he really pushed out the boat. Uh, and he also produced a, a whole lot of really leading um, historians of, of, of modern Ireland as well.
0: Greg, right, I'll go to you, if you want to make, it, so John is, made the case for the, the local approach. So what about the, uh, what's wrong with that?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I know you like a fight, Tommy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. w- what I suppose what I would say is, uh, you know, if, if you want to analyse any problem or think about any historical event, different perspectives have different uses. So if you look at something up close, like the Irish Revolution, I think you can ask certain questions. So if you're looking at a particular, say, uh, if you're looking at what happens in Cove in 1919, you can ask very specific questions like what kind of people joined uh, the revolution, what kind of acts of violence occurred, what, what were the motivations for that. I think just as looking up close though gives you particular insights, looking at the bigger picture uh, gives you different pictures, I mean, and, and normally, looking at the Irish Revolution, we either do local studies, which, because they're so popularized by David Fitzpatrick, they became almost like a template, probably, probably is the most popular means of studying the Revolution. But the other very popular kind of framework that historians take for analyzing historical problems is, is the nation, you know, so, so almost automatically we'll write histories of the War of Independence in Ireland, sometimes perhaps a, a wider nation the kind of the, the UK. What I would say in terms of why does a case for maybe stepping back even further and looking at the international or even the global perspective is the different perspective allows you to ask slightly different questions uh, about different problems. So if we just take one, for example, maybe, which I think is maybe a weakness of the local study, causation. What actually caused the Irish Revolution? Why did it happen the way it happened? Why did it end in the way that it did? Well, if you imagine sort of, we're looking at the map of West Cork and we pull out, and we're looking at the map of Ireland, and actually we're looking at the map of Europe. What we can see is if you look at the pre-war map of Europe, the the obvious kind of model of political rule is that you've got a small number of empires that rule vast territories, which are multinational, multi-ethnic. If you fast forward to 1920, 22, you've got this patchwork of nation states. So you can see that the whole way in which politics is organized internationally, has been transformed by the First World War. And I think looking at that then maybe gets you thinking about new questions about Ireland. Ireland f- seems to obviously fit into a kind of pattern which you see in Central and Eastern Europe where uh, empires have collapsed and new nation states have broken away. And then I think that lens leads to other questions such as, well, what were the similarities between what happened in Ireland and say what happened in, in Yugoslavia or Poland? More interestingly, what were the differences? Why were, for example, the scales of violence very different? So that's maybe one case for internationalising uh, the, the study of Ireland. I'm going to ask you: do, do you think that there was a tendency to see,
0: you know, up to recently, see Ireland as exceptional?
2: Yeah, I think if I think if you're just looking at a local area or a national area, the tendency is that you will focus on what's happening in that area and miss the parallels. So, for example, uh, I've just come recently come back from from Korea. Where the Koreans are celebrating March first, uh, which was the beginning of their independence movement, which uh, occurred 100 years ago last month, and th- the Koreans were interested in looking at the parallels with Easter Rising, because March first was a popular uprising be- begun by intellectuals. Is it against the
0: Japanese, by the way? Just a clarification.
2: Yes, so, yeah. so, 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 Korean nationalists read out a proclamation, uh, uh, and they, they, protests began. Um, and within a, within a, uh, it's really the, the, the foundation of modern Korean nationalism. But what struck me looking at what Korean nationalists did in, in, in March first wasn't so much the parallels with Easter Rising, even though there were some, but actually the parallels with what happens in Ireland in 1919. So the Koreans, for example, they they, they set up a, a provisional government, they pass a constitution. Uh, They appeal for international recognition at the Paris conference. So there's this whole kind of model of revolutionary anti-imperialist activism that you find happening at the same time in different places. So I think again, that's another example of where the global is is very useful. The third case I'd make really for why the global or the international is important is if you look at the Republican strategy itself. So there's political mobilization at home. Um, There's a a, a military uh, conflict and then there's a kind of international propaganda. But e- each of those three strategies are actually international. So w- what did the Koreans and the Irish do? Went to, at the beginning of the revolution, they, 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 they found the parliament and read a, 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 a declaration of independence. Interna- international propaganda was hugely important to uh, Republicans, mobilizing that dias- the diaspora was hugely important. So e- even if you're kind of interested in telling the more conventional story of the Irish War of Independence, that's actually a very international story.
0: Well, maybe maybe if it want to you, Dara, just to give us a, a, a particular example of this. Um, I mean, the, in, in January 1919, Doll Airn was established, which claimed to be you know, the, the, the government of Ireland, right? And obviously, like any government, you have to have a, a, a foreign office. So, I mean, uh, what was their approach to this aspect?
3: It's a really interesting point to, to bring up Doll Aaron because it's very often heralded in Irish history and Irish commemoration as the you know, founding, foundation stone the kind of cornerstone or keystone of Irish, um, you know, political life and Irish um, constitutional democracy. But of course, it was also very much part, as Fergus has already alluded to, of this contemporary uh, European, indeed worldwide, uh, Wilsonian moment, so to speak. So when the uh, members of the Dáil, twenty-seven MPs, as they went into the uh, round room of the mansion house, TDs as they left, so to speak, on the 21st of January. Uh, When they gathered, they were essentially presenting their case to the world. Um, And there are a number of uh, manifestations of that. In the first instance, the proceedings of the first stall on the 21st of January were conducted almost entirely in Irish uh, notwithstanding um, translations of key documents into French and English and this of course was the presentation of Irish nationalism as separate from you know uh, British rule and indeed home rule versions of that previous to that um, the, the documents that were issued for example by that body included a message to the free free nations of the world in which they stressed the the relevance of ireland's um, claim to independence in the context of the post-war world self-determination freedom of small nations and wilsonianism writ large and of course the third strand to that of that particular day really was the um, delegation of members of the dole to the paris peace conference at versailles at first it was de valera and clunkett and arthur griffith who were delegated to attend the versailles conference ostensibly to present To the world the de facto existence of an Irish Republic and Irish independence but of course there are two problems to that. First of all de Valera and uh, Griffith were both imprisoned from the German plot um, 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 imprisonments of of 1918 and secondly when Sean T. O'Kelly who was delegated by the Dáil to attend Versailles to gain admission for the Republican movement uh, arrived on the 8th of February and he was um, prevented from entering Versailles. So what Took place thereafter was a long Darren, can I ask you? When
0: you said you know he was prevented from entering, like, yes. does that mean like he was physically manhandled? I'm just curious. <laughs> what, like, uh, how that worked? Like, I mean, some guy said. Sorry, you can't come
3: in. Yeah, so he went over ostensibly, um, actually as a member of Dublin Corporation. And what happened was, Dublin City Council essentially were going to offer the uh, freedom of the city to President Woodrow Wilson, which was you know quite common across the United Kingdom at the time. But once he arrived in Paris, he presented himself in his in his true uh, you know political life of, as a member of Sinn Féin and Dail Éireann, as can Corle of Dail in fact. And on that basis, his credentials were not acknowledged right. um, in Paris, and he spent essentially then the next three to four months with George Gavin Duffy in Paris, trying to convince the 71 delegations of the claims of the Irish Republic.
2: Yeah, Fergal, yeah. Well, I might add that, that that experience is one that lots of different groups had. So, so the Korean representative had the exact same experience. The Japanese tried to stop them traveling. Eventually, one of them found well, a the way- the Japanese are on the Allied side. Uh, ex- yeah. Okay, so uh, that's a problem. Yeah, exactly, mm. yeah. Uh, um, and so, at places like Paris, you've got, you've got people like Ho Chi Minh, you know, representing Vietnamese nationals. You've got the Irish, the Indians, the Egyptians. And so you can see these patterns develop. All these hopes were uh, uh, risen by the Wilsonian moment. And when America decided for pragmatic reasons that they would actually sort of you know, keep much of the, the imperial sort of uh, framework, you see then a the shift from, from politics to violence. So you see that in Ireland, but you see that in places like India and Egypt. So if you look at the, um, the Sinn Féin general election um, manifesto in 1918 it's really interesting because they actually spell out quite coherently how they're going to achieve independence and that's a kind of a political strategy give us a mandate for independence we'll get a seat at Paris we'll ask Wilson to recognize uh, Ireland and we'll we'll take it from there so it was was quite clever because it was a way of sort of bypassing Westminster um, and so the the response to that that failure is is that uh, you know by mid 1919 violence has become much more part of the Strategy than politics, but but and in retrospect, I think perhaps we can place too much emphasis on violence, uh, and it's important to go back to, to looking at how Republicans at the time thought that they would best advance uh, Republican interests. You know, one thing I just say
1: is um, Washington Street in, in Cork was named after George Washington in 1918 to in order to the, the Cork Corporation. Uh, Gave the freedom of city to Woodrow Wilson to try to get him to visit Ireland. So it was part of this Concerted as as Fergal says part of this really concerted Foreign strategy foreign recognition strategy that was essential that was also part of the victory and Sinn Féin's victory was Sinn Féin was asking for a Unified and a clear mandate from the Irish people for sovereign independence. That was that was part of its electoral pitch and that was one reason, that's one reason why Labour didn't stand, because it was trying to get this very, very clear message uh, for recognition, and there was an assumption that the Americans would support their claim.
0: Just before we go to Linda, okay. I, just, I just want to go back to Darv, one point, right? Mm-hmm. Back to Sean T. in, 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 uh, in Paris. Uh, because John Gibney has an article in, in, this, in the supplement uh, with a very good title, Dressed to Impress, right? Because you see pictures of, uh, uh, of Sean T. O'Kelly and his wife and they're dressed to the nines. I mean, presume these people are whining and dining, and you know they're they're costing a fortune. I mean, how did they actually finance this whole operation? I mean, they had this elaborate international operation all over the world. How, how did it work, like from a practical point of view?
3: Well, that's actually one of the first complaints that Sean T. O. Kelly sends back to Dublin in his first letters. You know, I'm not getting enough money financially from from Dolan. <laughs> I suppose that the broader diplomatic corps are ostensibly supported by Michael Collins' uh, internal loan, and then when De Valera especially goes to the United States in June of 1919. The, um, the equivalent of $65 million is actually raised in today's money in, in, uh, in the United States and £10 million in today's money at home, which are obviously uh, you know, astronomical amounts for a fledgling counter state, which again was declared illegal in September 1919. Um, but actually it's, it's, it's an interesting question about the kind of the socialisation I mean um, Annie who who is the wife of John Charters is one of the key uh, kind of um, makers of the Irish case in Paris and is very seldom talked about um, in terms of you know um, she was a cosmopolitan uh, poet, um, poet writer uh, and very much um, allowed people like Sean T. Kelly George Gavin Duffy to go from their kind of more traditional nationalist position into the more um, you know middle class society of Paris and in fact Going back to Fergal um, talking about you know why the global and so on, it actually foregrounds nationalist women much more than let's say the local case does. Um, you know people like Nancy Weiss Power in Germany were very much at the forefront of por- propaganding, prop- uh, propagating the Irish cause. So that's something we can really talk about going forward. Linda,
0: uh, that keys up your intervention here. I mean, one of the things there has been maybe a bit of self-congratulation about is that the role of women is now being acknowledged uh, in the revolutionary period. Uh, But there's one aspect of of it you've been doing a bit of work on uh, recently, just to fill us in on that.
4: Um, Yeah, Um, just before I say that, I think regardless of whether the revolution is local, global, national, I think it's also female, um, and that's very important um, to acknowledge. And also on Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick was very influenced, as he said himself, at his retirement event, which I I spoke at last May, um, that he was very influenced by the methods of social science, in particular Arnsberg and Kimball's, Um, anthropological study of County Clare in the 1930s Um, so I wouldn't use the word local Um, I would say there are different kinds of methods, um, some of them coming from different disciplines apart from history and I think it's important not to fetishise the historical method because there is an interdisciplinary approach as well you might call it oral history, well you know, Arnsberg and Kimball were gathering such data in the 1930s so I think we should broaden out a little bit beyond that kind of narrow definition of what history is it can be many things, I would say that because I'm a sociologist, um, so with a strong historical interest, obviously. Uh, so some of us work across those boundaries, whether it be local, national, or global. So there's a methods aspect, I think, here that's been missed as well. Um, so yes, so 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 I've been looking at different aspects of um, the revolution. Um, I suppose just to put that in context. Um, regardless of where we're talking about revolutions, they have uh, a couple of things in common internationally, particularly where they lead to regime change. Um, And that is that um, women are always to the forefront of revolutions, as you said, uh, critical actors, operating in highly sophisticated ways. But when the regime change happens, um, men tend to take the credit and the power. Um, So uh, the military archives are indeed very, very important, as you say. Tommy, because hundred years later, we've suddenly realized, oh gosh, the women actually did have a very active role, a very critical role. Um, John, you've written about the women in Common Many others, many of my colleagues have started to look again, to look back at what we might call the agency, the, the active role of women in revolutionary activity. And that's been critical. Having said that, I think we shouldn't be uncritical about the archive. Some of them are limited. There is material um, redacted in some cases, or names redacted. And actually that's the kind of material I've been attracted to. Um, Particularly around the deeper questions as we move through the decade of centenaries, um, and we talk about violence, and in particular what we call transgressive violence, which are very difficult issues to face up to, particularly as we come to the Civil War, I think it's very important that it's not just a male narrative that it's not a story of brother against brother because we are looking at i suppose not just the role of women in the revolution as active agents but it's important we don't romanticize that and look at the impact of the violence and the revolution on women um, so i've been looking at that recently um, I suppose ac- across... Lynne, can I just ask, just before yeah.
0: you, you go on there, sorry to, to cut across you, but sure. you're talking about redacted documents. Is, is this in the, the pensions file?
4: So what you might find, for instance, so, so when people gave their statements, as John said, um, there were two copies. So there was one given to the the, the person who gave the statement and they took um, that for whole... For the for, the, for the Bureau, uh-huh. yeah. And then there was another, another copy, is what we read today. So I've come across, for instance, instances of... Um, um, hair cutting, which was prevalent right. throughout right. this period for different reasons. Um, I suppose there was a way of um, controlling women, sexual policing, um, a these warning.
0: But even having their head shaved, now, these be, say, women who are accused of um, going out with British soldiers sure. or whatever. Sure, right?
4: all of okay. that informing, um, being too friendly yeah. with the enemy um, or simply not falling into line. Um, so... Um, So there are instances, for instance, where Clearly, these kinds of um, events are described, um, but the names of the women are redacted. For instance. Why do
0: you think that is? I mean, is this, the, uh, sorry, is this redacted now, or redacted? Yes, in, if you in the look past? up
4: the statements now, they okay. have, the names are redacted. For instance. But
0: then, of course, you, I mean, if, that's you, not in all the
4: cases. The minute you
0: use a researcher, see somebody redacted, you say, "Oh, this must be, this must be you know, yeah, well, interesting stuff." You know. Well,
4: what you do then is you, you, use, you actually use the local. Fergal, You go to someone you know in the area who's a historian and ask them, "Do you know about this event or this case, and what?" actually happened because you're building up I suppose as John said this larger picture um, as to whether or not these were isolated incidents that happened to a tiny number of women or whether there was this kind of systematic uh, use of a practice uh, against women throughout this period and I think we know at this stage. um, And what what, what is the picture
0: that has emerged so So, far?
4: So I think what most historians who have began to look at this only very recently uh, Marie Coleman and others would suggest that in the case of what we might call coerced Um, head shaving or hair cutting. I think that's a limited definition because often it involved pulling hair, it involved verbal abuse, physical violence. It's sort of a continuum of violence that goes with that. Um, This occurred with regularity um, um, throughout um, the War of Independence in particular. Um, so, so, So there's a lot of interest in these kinds of cases as they crop up in the archives. And it is very interesting, but it has to be put in the context, I suppose, of um, wider questions around violence it isn't a um, and again to get to the comparative aspect of this um, it's most interesting that if you look at most civil wars conflicts globally um, forced hair cutting uh, shaving shearing whatever you want to call it um, different names is a feature of pretty much every Conflict: the Spanish Civil War, the Greek Civil War. Uh, We know after the Second World War, War, sorry, um, you know French women who were presumed to have um, slept with German soldiers. Um, Duchenne has argued that some of these women were actually raped, and they were punished for being complicit in their own rape. Um, So again, so so I suppose this idea of Ireland being an exception when it comes to violence against women can be very much challenged when we look at these kinds of practices. So we're gathering the evidence. Where did it occur? Secondly, looking at why did it occur um, and how it's gendered and how gender, if you like, in all of these discussions adds a further dimension um, you know, adds a different kind of understanding which adds to uh, our understanding um, of the revolution. So it's very interesting that what occurred in Ireland has also occurred in many other conflicts but again we can ask what was specific um, to, to Ireland uh, around these kinds of practices and how they applied to women.
0: John, mention, Linda mentioned your work on common demands. Do you, do you want to add anything
1: Yeah, else? I mean... Um, I think the scholarship on Kamin'Aman has really developed a lot in the last few years. I mean, there, there was great work done by Margaret Ward, um, Louise Ryan as well. Uh, and then it kind of went, a lot of people didn't touch Kamin'Aman. To you know, a lot of the local histories, for example, had nothing on coming to Uh And, you know, it was this, it was with Sinn Féin, I mean, the the, the, the revolution, if you want the revolutionary movement was basically Sinn Fein the IRA coming them on and probably the ITGWU, you can make that the union you can make a, a argument for that as kind of its component organizations uh, and you know not that much and so you know it, that that should feature in all kind of local uh, or, or regional studies uh, and but it didn't always I think now we I think that's changed but it's only changed really in the last few years yeah. I think I think um, I think Marie Coleman was I think Marie Coleman and myself were the only people who had chapters on them on in their in their local studies uh, um, out of out of all those, um, and that's. But as I said, that's changing, and which is great. And 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 you know, and as you know, to Fergal's point too, I think all this stuff is. We're just we're still in the early stages of the scholarship, and we're we're learning a lot more really rapidly. There's a lot of good work, so all this work is really important. What Fergal and Dara are doing, and and. Uh, this idea of understanding the international component, which is again, as you said, it's it's it's, it's highly. I, I, you were talking, Dara. I was um, about uh, Nancy Weiss power. I wrote a thing on her. I wanted to map her for. We, we we got to it too late for the for the atlas because she has a crazy like she. I, I wrote a big old kind of three or four hundred word thing on her in the atlas because yeah, she was she's she's she's, she's uh, a PhD student at Bonn. Studying Irish, she speaks really good German. She's from this revolutionary family. Her mom is um, uh, her mom is a, 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 a experienced suffragist and land leaguer, um, lady land leaguer. Uh, she. Publishes the Irish Bulletin in German weekly. She's dealing with German arms smugglers. She's dealing with spies. She's followed by the British Secret Service, I and mean, she has this crazy experience. And again, it's like all that kind of. That it's really. It's also. It's interconnections. about all these global networks. And like the more we understand and can, and can uh, put it in that kind of those kind of context, the, the deeper our understanding will be
0: just before you come in i just want to remind the audience that uh, this is a school and you are expected to do a bit of work uh, so if you have any contribution to make or question to ask we have a, a radio mic here and i'd ask you to use the mic this has been all all been recorded by way by the way so uh, no, no nothing libelous please um Fergal, you wanted well, to come in i
2: was just gonna say I, I think we, when we're thinking about gender we also need to think about how uh, the history of the war of independence was written i mean women had a much more prominent role in, certainly in the Easter Rising and in the War of Independence than the histories that were written in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s uh, made clear. And I think one of the reasons for that is when 1913 when, when, uh, to 23 is a revolutionary period, you know, you've, you, not just in Ireland, things like the, the uh, Communist Revolution and so on, in the Soviet Union. So things seem a little bit more open and possible. But what we see in the in twenties and thirties is a very conservative free state, you know, very nationalistic, very Catholic. And so the, the histories that are written in that period tend to marginalize women. So there's a problem with the history writing itself that we've been slow to address. And the other problem I think is also one of sources you know, because people aren't writing, women aren't writing memoirs and women, you're getting accounts about women, uh, for example, in the county histories, which say, which are called things like how do women helped You marginalize know, marginalized. There's a problem there. There's also a problem in the sources. So if you look at the military service pensions collection, which is probably the best news source we have in the revolution, it's very geared towards men because it was, uh, it was a kind of a gendered notion of what military service was. So if women were doing revolutionary things, political things, propaganda things, that tended not to be rewarded and it tended not to be recorded in the same way. So if you look at um, the files for women like Helena Maloney, sort of feminists who were kind of on the losing side in the 1930s, they're they're really sort of saying very explicitly that this whole thing is geared against women. It's geared against recognizing uh, women's contribution. So I guess it's taken us a long time, but in terms of history writing and in terms of thinking about the sources to, to deal with the very gendered nature of the society which retrospectively recorded women's contribution and retrospectively kind of marginalized women's contribution
4: has been this project of what was called recovery work in relation to women's history but a lot of it focused on social history uh, and it's only really with these new sources that the political history or the revolutionary history if you like that lens has also shifted and uh, onto, onto that level as well
0: John, I want to just bring you in here, and just to go back to the, the, the global aspect. Obviously, there's there's a huge Irish diaspora all over the world. Like, so what was what was their role in the, in the revolutionary period?
3: Well, I think that actually builds on the previous comments that Fergal and Linda made in terms of marginalisation and historiography. There is that sense within, uh, you know, Irish historical writing that you know if one left the country, that one left one historiography and entered into another. And so therefore, you know, the, those who left Ireland, even in the Revolutionary period, you know, uh, were kind of fell between two, two historiographical strands, the Irish Revolution and then the diasporic, diasporic strand. And therefore, you know, what a global uh, history of the Irish Revolution can do is integrate the Irish in America and Australia, but also individual narratives of migration and displacement, which may not always have been positive and so on. Um, the most famous or infamous example, of course, of the, kind of the, the dias- diaspora story during this period is de Valera's tour of the United States between June 1919 and December 1920, and I think his period, which has of course been very well documented, um, really speaks to this idea of long-distance nationalism, um, which can actually transform our understanding of the Irish Revolution, because de Valera was not only touring, you know, American cities, he was also writing back to his colleagues in Dublin and about that experience, that uh, tour was being documented in Irish newspapers and so on. So we do have kind of a transatlantic if not global um, reading of the Irish Revolution contemporarily and understood contemporarily as that global experience. So,
0: And, and Fergan, I, I was going to bring you in. Like, how did events an impact then on the Irish abroad and, and, and in the British Empire, in particular. Yeah,
2: I, I am just going to add to that. Sometimes we have a tendency when we're looking at the revolution to think about it just in terms of what Republicans and revolutionaries are doing. But of course, there's a really interesting story to be told about um, imperialists, unionists, uh, policemen. Like, for example, in the same way that sort of anti treaty Republicans, kind of losers of the, the period, emigrate to America in large numbers, you see a lot of RIC men and black and tans moving on to Palestine and areas like that. Um, This is the 100th anniversary today of the Amritsar Massacre and it's really interesting to think about that 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 raises all sorts of interesting questions so 400 people uh, at a minimum, probably much more, were killed uh, by the British army um, in in the Punjab Um, and there's a very interesting kind of Irish dimension to that story the the general who uh, uh, gave the the orders to open fire uh, Dyer was actually educated very close to here in Middleton Um, the uh, the lieutenant governor who was responsible for the very draconian kind of uh, clampdown in the Punjab, Sir Michael Dwyer, he was an Irishman. So, uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a story there about Irish, we, we, we can't just claim Irish revolution as we have to think of Irish imperialists. But also that incident, I think, raises really interesting questions about how the British Empire behaved in different ways in different parts of its empire. So when the Croke Park massacre happens, that's recorded in some newspapers as uh, Ireland's Amritsar. But if you think about the difference in fatalities, it raises questions about did the British feel, perhaps for reasons of race or reasons of distance, that they could kill much greater numbers of Indians than Irish, that they could repress them uh, in in a way. So so it it leads you back to comparative questions about why did revolutions work out in in different ways, in different kind of contexts, and were there more restraints in some Areas for for probably a whole wide range of reasons than in other geographical areas of the empire.
0: One one, one of the episodes of the Irish Revolution, of course, the Connacht Rangers uh, mutiny in India, right? We did an article a few years ago in History Ireland, and some of the illustrations, little drawings they did, right? But it's very clear that the, that the way they depict you know, the natives and the, the names, it yeah. was just straightforwardly racist, you know. So, so, so the, it's, it's, a, it's a complex picture, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're, uh, they're engaging in anti-imperial activity, but it's totally disconnected to their immediate uh, surroundings, it's all yeah. about what's yeah. happening uh, back, back in Ireland, you know. I, I noticed, by the way, Dyer uh, in his defence, or when he was, because it was an inquiry, <coughs> And he, do, he said the only thing he regretted was he didn't have any automatic weapons at his disposal. I mean, this, the, the, you know, I mean, this, they're all shot in an enclosed area, by the way. Just to I mean, good, good or, there's a good article
1: in Irish Times today. I, what I hadn't realized was Dwyer. So Dwyer, right? Is that the, Does Dwyer? I mean, is is the, 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 the government, government. Dwyer. Is so the old Dwyer, Dwyer, Dwyer was, his, right? uh, was the. So he's from the Golden Vale, and his family had been involved they'd been they, they were involved in some agro during the land war where they had shots fired over his, uh, you know warning shots fired over the farm and that was uh, attributed to his kind of fear of, of civil disorder uh, but and so I think one thing uh, we, we it's it's uh, sometimes Irish historians don't speak to the international so it's like it's like a different you know different uh, conversations so uh, an Irish historian would like we'll go oh yeah like that's a, that's a really, it's, it's not just he's Irish. He's from like a, a, a place that's a hotbed during the, the land war. And so you understand the implications of that. And, and that's what this kind of global idea is. I, I'll tell you another one about um, Cove. Uh, Cove is uh, uh, the center of this crazy episode with um, the Bishop of Melbourne, Mannix. And and Mannix is a a really big figure in Australian history. He he champions and he's the front man for the anti conscription campaign in Australia where they they reject conscription. And Mannix is coming over to Ireland. He's from Charleville. And uh, he's taken, he's intercepted off of Roach's Point on a liner by by a, a a, a Royal Navy destroyer, and he's landed in Penzance and he was always nicknamed the Bishop of Penzance after that. Uh, and he was banned from, and they refused to let him speak in Liverpool or Manchester or Glasgow. That was a big, that's a big episode in Australian history and, and kind of this fear of contagion, fear of the Catholic Church. Um, and it shows you actually a lot of the, the British attitudes. Uh, you know, they, they really, they had racial attitudes about the Irish um, but they also had really profound anti-Catholicism, yeah. and they and they and so they were always convinced that the priests were telling, well, the priests were behind all this, because obviously Irish Catholics, you know, only listen to their priests. Uh, but you, you know, it's it's joining up those kind of dots, the the you know Mannix and, and how his uh, you know his role and how the Irish in Australia who were on both sides and and, and all this kind of interconnection, inner which is I find really fascinating.
2: I I think one of the things our our project is trying to explore is this idea of connections. I mean, so you look at that incident with with, with Mannix, and it's happening because of the the Terence McSweeney and that in itself is a global story, probably up there at Bobby Sands. Mannix is being taken off the ship, leads to a a big uh, um, strike in in New York, which brings together uh, African-American activists and Irish. Um, Going back to the the Dwyer um, uh, incident, I hadn't realised that Sir Michael Dwyer, when he was... He was assassinated in 1940 right. by an Indian nationalist who came to London. And uh, to this day, uh, the date of Dwar's assassination is a national holiday in the Punjab. So, so we've got him 21 years later. But, but these incredible connections between, between nations, between imperialisms, anti-imperialisms, and we can tie them up by looking at particular stories or moments, I think, and it opens up a whole, yeah. a whole set of new questions. And I think these connections are much more, were much more apparent to actors in 1919 than they will be to scholars who are just looking at what's happening in a particular area because we, we all sort of tend to, to to focus on a particular thing and by focusing you sometimes miss some of the connections which uh, are o- obvious to us when we open up a newspaper we see things happening
1: in different parts of the world at the same time. Uh, McSweeney's brother was, was well known or was a, a minor celebrity in Canada because he refused induction in the Canadian Army in 1917 and was sentenced to death and he and wasn't executed but he kind of as a form of as an Irish nationalist refused induction and, and so again it's those kind of it's a, a lot of that there these knock on as you said connections um, not just between act it's just so it's a, it's a really fascinating global moment and the big thing is that it's the the, tra- the revolutions in travel and communications are, are what make all this possible. And so what what the Irish are doing is they're transmitting to a global audience. And that's their, as you said, that's a core part of what they're trying to achieve.
0: Can I just ask, uh, why do so, some events uh, resonate more than others? Like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking in particular of the death of uh, Terence like McSweeney. That seemed to be a huge uh, worldwide event. Why is that, or why was that?
2: Um, I suppose it's 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 a particularly dramatic moment um it's there's a lot of parallels with with bobby sands i think um you've got this one man uh who 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 is making a symbol of his defiance through his suffering and his bravery uh goes back to john's point i think too about the media the media is hugely important um i think this is only becoming possible in the 1910s in the way that it, it is in the way that news can travel within, within hours, within a day. Uh, I mean, a particular kind of moment when, when this is obvious is the Easter Rising. I mean, the, the Easter Rising is front page news in the New York Times for about two weeks. Um, so suddenly there's a, there's a kind of, the, the industry has made possible a kind of a global appetite for news. And I think McSweeney, a bit like Bobby Sands, a bit like Patrick Pierce, understood theater, um, spectacle, myth—how to kind of construct a story that would, would grip public imagination?
0: And of course, it personifies the struggle as
2: well. well Absolutely, yeah. Weak against strong.
1: We also forget um, that Mary McSweeney is probably the best orator in the movement. Full stop. Like her, and probably Father Flanagan are probably the best two. Pub- and so he also has a spokesperson who's outstanding, and so. Uh, and so, yeah. Do you want to get in there?
4: Uh, yeah, no, just, I just, like, just in a second. Yeah. That's, so that's, just that, just I'll let you, <laughs> did, did, did you in first. No, I just wanted to shake it up a little bit, though, because I think it's really important. I, I read this review recently that Brian Hanley wrote in 2016, and yes, we're talking about interconnections, and it's all very important, and it's all at the global level. But I think what Brian is saying, um, very upfront, is this is kind of post-provisionist agreement, and and really. Um, what we're talking about here is anti-imperialism yeah. on a global scale. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I see very little critique. I mean, you look, I haven't read the article in the Irish Times today, but you look at the critique of imperialism, now, I don't want to uh, revisit the nationalist revisionist debate, but in some ways I think we do, because there is this kind of consensual view, you know, of networks, of internationalism. And I would like to see, I suppose, Max Sweeney, I would say, it was to do with the, 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 um, the whatever, the rupture in imperialism and um, that was occurring in different parts of the world. Um, so I would like to see that sort of more front and center uh, in terms of, of, of that analysis.
1: Yeah, I always say like the British Empire is rotten. It's rotten to the core. And, 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 <laughs> and it really, it really, I mean it's, it, it has, it has, it has well it, has it has, it has, you know, has, it has a parliamentary democracy and that's great. But it was, it was, it was governing people against their will star. I, I think it's also, a, yeah. yeah, get in quick. Silly,
5: yeah. <laughs> just, just, you know. but, just quickly on not on, on Sweeney. Uh, isn't it, it's kind of a reflection of society at the time, because at the same time, and, and you talk about the gender inequality and all that, um, Joe Murphy's death was as important as McSweeney's Sweeney's, and it was never mentioned and it's only 99 years mm-hmm. later Just though, move the mic
0: away rec- a small bit. It's 99 years
5: that Joe Murphy has been recognised. Um, yeah. So society at that time saw Mac Sweeney as the man in position, yeah. much the same as the British organised society and, and Murphy was forgotten about you know?
1: and, and Mick Fitzgerald, who was, who was a, a union organiser and a, was both an IRA activist and a labour activist, and, and he's not really, he's not, uh, but you know, that's that's because it's a media moment as much as a, as a as a as a political thing. Yeah, don't you think? Right. I was just going
3: to say as well, yeah. Sean, you've mentioned this previously, uh, as Lord Mayor, that's a title which has a global resonance, which right. translates to various political cultures and obviously has respectability. I think, Linda, you it's mentioned classes. class as well. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that literally will make, you know, Lord Mayor's death by hunger strike will make headlines in the American Fantastic. press, the Australian press, and, and so on. It's, it's also about
2: novelty. I mean, it's the same applies to those who followed Bobby Sands or those who followed uh, Kevin Barry. You know, we, we, we don't, we can't remember everyone. We remember someone as a symbol of a. Wife sort of phenomenal but you know he Sorry. wasn't the first one to die though yeah. fitzgerald died before he did no but i think
1: there's a selectiveness around oh, him yeah, remembered, and that crowds out you know and, other experiences and, and he's also you know there's a couple things going on too the, the you forget that the mccurtain assassination was a really that was a global news story so he was the six so part of the drama was it's kind of but as you said it, the sand i'll tell you what's what's the the the, the thing with the sands is there was a question over whether they'd let him die when he was elected to parliament, right? That was part of the that, that was part of the Bobby Sands thing. With um, McSweeney, there was a question whether the British would take the hit of of allowing a second Cork Lord Mayor to die. And so that was so that added to the drama. Um, and as you said, uh, Dara, um, the the title you know the symbolic, but you know in, in certain European cultures it's not; it's a real administrative thing. And so, if you think about it, McSweeney, he's the best front man the Republicans could have picked. Like he's, 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 he's the full, you know, he's a poet, he's a playwright, he's a teacher, uh, he's got a young family, uh, he's a soldier, he's a statesman, he's all this kind of stuff. He's respectable, he's, he's you know, he's, and, and in terms of the class thing, he's also quite upwardly mobile. He's actually not, he's actually pretty working from pretty modest roots. His, his dad had abandoned the family and he went to the North Monastery, went to school at night, but he presents this image of the kind of the modern, the modern uh, of what the Irish are striving for. And so, yeah. Excuse me, yeah. You want to get, get in there? In a minute, Yeah. Hi, Karen.
4: Yeah. how are you? Um, I'm glad to see all that, um, that history has
6: come out of UCC because when I went to UCC, I, I would have liked to study history and it's, uh, I, I had to move to sociology as an independent <laughs> test <laughs> 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 I didn't make a very good sociologist but um, um, I, I want to talk in general about what Dr McGarry was talking about there earlier um, and the general thing about what the results of this whole so called revolution is because it, on the interesting aspect about Max Sweeney's, um, Max Sweeney's hunger strike you know, his wife went to Brixton prison and appealed to him to knock it in the head. She said, this is no revolution, okay? Also, an in- another interesting, maybe perhaps aspect is Ho Chi Minh, who was on the run from the French authorities mm-hmm. in Britain at the time, followed Max Sweeney's hearse down to the port at, um, down in London. Now, he didn't travel over it, but he wrote about that afterwards in his biography, you know, this whole thing that you may, uh, you know, the whole thing that um, um, it's not those who inflict the most. You know, mm-hmm. Max Sweeney's perhaps his most important contribution was his Principles of Freedom, mm-hmm. which is very simply written, but it is an anti imperialist tract. But Muriel Max Sweeney had it captured. You know what happened to Muriel Max afterwards? She, you know, she wants her daughter educated in abroad. She lived in uh, Paris and Berlin, and her, uh, her child was snatched on behalf of the De Valera government on behalf of Mary McSweeney and the family, who didn't want a child to be brought up in, a, in an, atheistic, an atheistic educational system, whatever. And that lady went afterwards, uh, and afterwards to marry Rory Brewer, wasn't it, I think? Actually, um, and uh, if you talk yeah. to
1: her, that wouldn't be her interpretation of it, yeah. the, the, the daughter.
6: To, 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 yeah, the daughter well, they never spoke again. Yeah. She did so yep. there was no yep. but uh, and Muriel Maxine never came back to live here again. But um um I I i digress in there, but um no I I, I don't want to I'd want to go on to the general thing, but the I um uh, when I did um, history in UCC I just did it for a first year and then went on to do mostly sociology. Um I tried to, um, you know, it was it was a hotbed, hotbed. It was well known of revisionism, like John a, John A. Murphy and <laughs> Mr. Don and Dr. Don and what's uh, um, his name, Keough, and all these very, very sensible. And there, the agenda, the agenda was so obvious that in the 1970s, eighties, they didn't want to make any contribution to. To the insurgency, any encouragement to the insurgency in the six counties didn't want to do anything like that. So, and it's, it's a, it is great to see that history, hist- histor- history academics, academics like yourselves, are able to sort of break through that now. But that is in the context of that the crisis for the, I mean, I say the native bourgeoisie, the the political ruling class is, as they say, is over. It's over now, and you're you're out. But I would like to think uh, one thing. I, I was looking through. I didn't read it in great depth. and It is a great book. The, the directory of the of the um, of the uh, the atlas, I should say, of the of the troubles, 1916-23, is a great. You know, it's very illustrative But perhaps it neglects. Um, it neglects to. Um, Point out that the so-called troubles—I you know, don't like using the term. It's like as if we all had—it was a, a great migraine headache. You know, it's very important. <laughs> you know, it was uh, the troubles. You know, uh, I'm troubled. Like you know, but and that's very important. Language is very important. Like you know, yeah, the, yeah. and the Brits—the British use it all the time. The Irish troubles. The Irish were troubled. Like, you know, it was a mental—a mental condition. The Irish were troubled people. Like, and um, uh, um, the. Uh, how can, how does history explain that a 29 month old, that's all it was, 29 months of this, what some people call the Tan War, the War of Independence, mm-hmm. casualty rate around 2,000 people roughly? Now I know every death is tragic, etc. But does it explain, how does it explain British willingness to, to disengage so quickly okay. from this country after such a small... Now, my, my own explanation is, I'm just a leading question I'm putting to you. And what, may I say, history overlooks was the whole notion that the British had from the time in South Africa when they implemented a plan of neocolonialism.
0: Yeah.
6: My mother is here and she remembers this town up to 1938. The British had controlled this town. She remembers... The British Navy and British Army, and this was a huge uh, um, naval garrison, as you know. But uh, the, uh, the the contribution, like I mean Cork, and all that, you, you know, the the British were under pressure in in six areas of the country: Cork, Cork Tipperary, Clare, Limerick, Dublin City, and Dublin County. They were martial areas. Otherwise, it was pretty much easy peasy. You agree? Mm-hmm. So. Surely the British, like I think you were saying, the casualty, actual casualty rate through the book was about two or three hundred men they lost. Now, yeah. much more policemen killed, double that. And volunteers, so many hundred. But the casualty rate does not add up to a whole hill of beans. Like you, t- you yeah. spoke about Korea. I'm sure the slaughter there against the... 50,000. 50,000, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I you can imagine. Cairn,
0: Cairn, you, can yeah, you I, I want, before sorry. I forget it, I yes. want to just focus in on the point you just made there. Right? So what you're saying is, why did the British disengage... Given that this wasn't, it it was a a modest enough conflict. Because I I wonder, if you don't mind, I want to bring Dara on this, right, to look at the treaty, right, because that's what you're talking about there. Um, Because you see, you get this view. You see, when when you talk about uh, the global, or the the, global history of the Irish Revolution, uh, from the Irish revolutionary point of view, it's all fine and dandy. It's all going great. Like they're getting this worldwide, and then. In the narrative, then it all goes terribly wrong with the treaty, and then you have the civil war, and of course all that that uh, it just dissipates the whole thing right now. That has been the narrative, especially on the on the Republican side, you know, betrayal and so on. But and this is a point that uh, Brian Hanley makes. I uh, should not know. It's not in the, in the supplements. In the next issue of History of Ireland, right? It doesn't take into account the major setback this was for the British. Right. I mean, people criticise the treaty, obviously, uh, Republicans in particular, but in that narrative there isn't uh, uh, sufficient uh, credit given to the fact that the, the British lost more territory than the Germans did after the First War. If you look at it that way, mm-hmm. so in that light, then how was the treaty seen globally then? Right by other revolutionary
3: movements. Well, it's interesting as you, to, the, to, the, to the question, um, again, I think we have to understand both violence but also political negotiation in global terms. And one of the interesting vignettes you get from those kind of diaries and, and retrospective accounts about the treaty, uh, the, the negotiations of the treaty is that, um, I think it's Lloyd George, brings Collins to this map of the world and show, shows Collins where Ireland could be in this kind of great, in you know, this kind of operatic fashion of where Ireland's place is in the world. But that, those were the ostensible facts. The, you know of, of global uh, of global politics and and so on in the just before the signing of the treaty in fact there was an Egyptian delegation who were based in London who actually who traveled over to Dublin on the recommendation of art O 'Brien who's the London envoy uh, for the doll in London and um, met with uh, with, with um, Eamon de Valera and co to uh, get, to counsel them on how to negotiate with the British because between 1919 and December 1921, the British were negotiating with Egyptians in London uh, about you know, self-government and so on. So there is this comparative element as Fergus brought out in terms of um, you know, how far constitutional politics can go and how far negotiation can go. Post-treaty then you see, for example, places like Australia, Canada, those kind of news connections, as John mentioned, really espousing the treaty as a victory for empire in the post-war settlement. Um, but quite interestingly, and going back to the debates Republicans or otherwise, both pro-treaty and <coughs> treaty advocates in treaty, treaty debates in December 21 and January 1922 used the empire as, uh, as a, um, uh, to position their arguments. So, for example, uh, Pat McCartan says, um, you know, we can't sign the treaty because this will abandon our fellow anti-colonial uh, mm. Struggle, strugglers, rather, um, in India, Egypt, and so on, whereas Collins obviously uses the stepping stone uh, paradigm. So both uh, Irish Republicans, uh, for and against the treaty, were very much aware of that global imperial context.
2: Mm. I'd, I'd also just add, going back to the question, that the, the British were leaving anyway. You know, Home Rule yeah. was in the statute, book. Yeah. what it was was a 10-year haggling over the terms. Yeah. You know, if, if the Republicans had been successful, they would have left the republic behind... Uh, if the British had been successful, we would have had to accept uh, home rule. And what we get is a, is a kind of a, a compromise, you know, with a dominion status. And what the British and the anti-treatyites couldn't have predicted, as Dara alludes to, is how, how quickly the meaning of what it was to be a dominion would evolve. So I think, it's the, I think the first document to talk about the British dominions instead of the British empires, the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And within 10 years, those, those, those dominions have effectively you know, gained a, a, a relative status of equality and, and, and thus the path to complete freedom was, uh, was viable. And a lot of countries in Africa decolonising powers in the 30s, 40s and in Asia looked to Ireland as a really successful example of how you could not just use violence nineteen nineteen to 21, but how subsequently you could sort of get free of the British Empire through a kind of political process.
0: It brings another point, like um, the, the, the giving of uh, a dominion status to Ireland, right? The point is, Dominions, that was the British definition of self-determination at that time. So in other words, they were, they were trying to, to put forward... Uh, and, and all the Dominions were, were represented separately, were they not, at the, at the Paris uh, peace talks. I'm not sure about that. That's,
6: that's yeah. the point, of, that's the point <laughs> I'm making. Yeah. That's the very point I'm making.
0: Yeah. That they are trying to create this idea that the, the, the British Empire is now democratic right. well, for, for, for the, the white bits of it. Right. right? And they want to co-opt Ireland into right. this global vision. Of, a, of, a, of, of I mean, white, it's, white dominions, which Republicans also asked. I it's
1: amazing when you think about the treaty. Basically, the the civil war is fought over the abstract idea of being in the empire, being out of the empire, because the the. But what they're saying the, here is not so abstract then. It's not so well,
0: abstract. No, I mean, I mean,
1: but it's, it's this idea. That's how, that's how seriously people took it.
0: Yeah, but I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, it, it, like, it just occurred to me now, like yeah. that it puts it puts the thing of the oath and the whole thing in a, in a different perspective. Yeah, like, and, it's not just you know because it, it's and, it's something dismissed that was well, just a formula of words, right? You know, but no, you and, the, o- and
1: the oath wasn't inserted, so you you had, to, they, had to, they had to assert that they were a member of the empire, right. and and people were like, no, we'll fight another war over that. So which is which is incredible when you think about it. But that's also the the you know the the, the global moment.
0: Just it just use the mic there. Yeah. So, so.
6: Um, for the civil war thing it's got to be it is um, very evident that the British were very partial to one side I mean as far as they were concerned and that issue was that issue was uh, um, completed uh, the civil war in 11 months or something okay? the republicans were, were hammered um, and that was uh, down to the, the British giving as much military um, and giving as much material Support to the Collins faction, everything from the four courts, weaponry down to their bootlaces. Like it was just uh, um and uh, seconding um, officers and NCOs from their forces. So, for the British, really, when you look at it, uh, 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 if I might say, I don't say you, know, you don't look at it objectively, but from the neo-colonial position, the British went out of their way to make sure there was a certain native class would take over i.e mm. now we, we look upon the, the difference between the devil and the collins faction as being asked which was just a it was very much almost a semantic issue like you know a major wars but to the british it was very important that there was less radical less if i can put it that way there was less radical and those who didn't have the support of the roman catholic church right which came behind the Treatyites, that they would that they would ultimately control so we're talking again about the British were setting were, um, were relying on relying on a neo colonial regime being established, which they had done previously in South Africa. So, so, Isn't that correct? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um,
1: so I would say that a big factor in all this is they're afraid of contagion. They're they're afraid of what's going on in Ireland is going to infect Egypt and India. That's the, that's what they're afraid of. And that's why they're like, well, you know what? We'll give Dominion, and Dominion's status is a, like negotiating with Michael Collins, and I mean, like, that's, you know, th- think about, you know, that's, that's a big deal, that's a, that was a big political hit for them to take, and they were like, no, we gotta, could, we gotta nip this thing in the bud, because it's, it's, it's like a poison in the, it's like a poison in the empire. And that's what they did. Um, yeah.
2: and it's bound up also with socialism and the, mm-hmm. the, the fear of the, the trade unions mm-hmm. within Britain. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, I mean, if you look at British intelligence, it's, it's all one big conspiracy. Yeah. It's all connected yeah. as
1: a kind of a fall of the social oh, yeah. order. And, 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 right, and the, and the Soviet, like we, we forget the, the, the Russian Civil War. I mean, the, the, the British were intervening, were, the British tried to intervene in Russia and control that. And basically there was kind of mutinies in their troops and the, on the docks. They try to intervene in Turkey, and the Dominion's don't go along with it. And it's like the whole thing's, as he said, they're 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 fearful of a big general strike, uh, and they're just fearful the whole thing's going to go up in flames. And so it just cut off the cut off Ireland, uh, or the or the South. Yeah. Quick
5: no, again. Um, just a quick question, and I don't know if anyone can verify it. Um, speaking, you know, about the weapons that were supplied and the forecourts and everything, it's something that's been denied over the years, basically. But I, there is a book across here in the cove tourism called the A to Z of Cork, which gives different explanations of different things and different place names and everything. And there's an article in there about the weapons and the courts, and what happened after the treaty. And it states that at the end of it all, the British sent a bill to the um, free state 435000 so many, and down to pennies and pence for the weapons supplied. Now, is that fact? Did it happen, or?
1: They, 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 they were loaning, they gifted them some stuff, like, like the armored cars and stuff. They, they, it, it was, there was actually a cost saving because they didn't have to ship stuff away. So they, I, I, I just know, I, I looked at the, at the figures for, I think they gave them something like 70 armored cars and armored trucks. And um, and they also they gave them yeah they gave them all these rifles and Lewis guns and they were, they were geared but they charged them they they were charging them and they were loaning they were loaning the free state the the, the the money to, to pay it basically. <laughs> so yeah. well, it's,
2: it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated, because prior to the Civil War... Sounds like like Sean common. Quinn. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Collins is swapping the, the guns that are given to the pro-treaty forces with the anti-treaty Republicans, so that can go up north to be potentially used against the six-county administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's quite, it's quite yeah, a tangled tale.
0: Just one thing also on the British imperial response in the 1920s, which is also that the Treasury we're really tightening the purse strings in terms of what the Foreign Office can do. This is why, for example, in Iraq, which was originally supposed to be essentially a colony, they end up compromising and making it into something much, much looser. But I do have one question actually for Linda, which is you were mentioning the gendered aspect of things like head shearings. I was wondering if you could expand on, in terms of terror and repression, Um, the extent to which that was gendered
5: and, because I know that's what your research, uh, you've been researching into that, if you could just speak a little bit more to that actually.
4: Um, okay, no problem, sorry to change <laughs> the subject. Um, yeah, I think as I said earlier, I think we're at a very early stage still in terms of the recovery work, that's required to look at this. I mean, with all aspects of violence against women, it's it's first of all very taboo to discuss it, particularly with something as sacred as as the revolution. So so I suppose in part, there's first of all, almost a kind of an inbuilt resistance to actually even speaking um, about these topics. But I I suppose that's now beginning to change. And I suppose I have a very simple message in all of of this work, that I think it's very important to look at in particular transgressive violence against women because if we can't look at these issues at a moment of commemoration how can we address them in the present and we know these are uh, key problems today so so the kinds of issues i suppose we're looking at there's very um limited evidence really of things like for instance the use of sexual violence uh, what we might call a weapon of war which again there's a whole massive literature since the 1980s in particular you know, when we saw the kind of um, you know, systematic uh, rape of women in Rwanda, in Bosnia and these kinds of places. So, so even by 20th century standards and scholarship, th- this is very late analysis. We're talking the 1980s in terms of these very recent um, conflicts. Um, so, so there was a very much established idea in Irish history um, that Ireland was exceptional when it came to particular forms of violence Perpetrated against women in the revolution and I very much challenged that and I've challenged it by looking for sources um, that might tell us more about the kinds of atrocities that were committed about women and against women I should say and that ranges as I said the most common I suppose practice as a kind of disciplining of women was the, the, the forced hair cutting I talked about earlier but there's been a tendency to see that in isolation from other forms of violence and also in fact to look at forced hair cutting is not even really violence that you're just getting your hair cut but of course it is violence um, you know it, it is violence it's symbolic violence um it's about attacking a woman's sexuality her virginal state she's singled out she's humiliated and probably marked for life within not just the local aspect but the communal aspect which is very powerful um in irish culture so you could look at communities never mind um localities um, but the question then, what other kinds of things happened? So, so we know, for instance, that um, women were terrorised frequently through things like night raids. You know, again, you know, read lots around the Spanish Civil War, particularly mothers often at the forefront of the revolution, the ones in the domestic context, where they're literally defending, you know, they're the ones who are there, you know, men are hiding, whatever, but they're often at the forefront um, of the violence. And so what happened uh, to women in domestic spaces I think is very particular to the Irish Revolution. When you look at post-Second World War II France, it was kind of very um, public um, hair cuttings, humiliation of women dragging them through the streets, calling their whores Always sexualised. Hair cutting is the same. It's always sexual, you know, in its connotation. It's to humiliate the women and to sexualise them. But what happened to these women, particularly in the domestic context, is one way in which we can uh, find clues and analysis. So we know the kind of terrorisation, you know, the physical pulling of women. You've countless stories of women always in their nightdresses at night, uh, being pulled out, being physically attacked. Um, some very violent scenes um, or, or violent stories of... of beatings, um, verbal abuse. So that's one aspect we know quite a lot about. Uh, We also know that women witnessed violence, and you talked about Max Sweeney, and again, the traumatic um, impact of women witnessing a close relative being shot uh, or killed um, or whatever is also another aspect of trauma. So so all of this trauma, if you like, um, we have stories of this, multiple stories of it, and I've looked at this in my research. We also have some evidence... Um, Of sexual violence, and 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 you know, as I said, I have a broad understanding of sexual violence. I think um, uh, hair cutting is part of a kind of, you know, an attempt to sexually humiliate uh, women. Sometimes they are stripped naked, for instance. So it's about bodily singling out women's bodies, I suppose, as sites of punishment. But when we talk about sexual violence, people often think you're just talking about rape. So. So were women um, raped in Ireland um, as part of the conflict that might have been different from what we might call peacetime rape? Because we know, you know, women don't just get raped in in revolutions. Um, And there are some instances and stories coming to bear. Um, One of the ones I've looked at is the case of Margaret Doherty in Foxford County Mayo, which was literally um, in the the most recent tranche um, of pension applications last May. And um, Margaret's mother, Catherine, applied for a pension on her behalf. Um, Margaret was gang raped um, by three members of the National Army. Um, again, very typically, just like I described it, dragged out of the house, stripped naked. Women were often blindfolded. There's another case in Castle Comer. Two girls who, again, um, you know, they were dragged a, maybe a mile away and had their hair cut. That seems to be the extent of what happened. Often we don't know, there's ambiguities, it's not clear what happened, you know. So, but in some cases like Margaret's, um, it is very clear um, there was a court martial. um, So, I could go on about that case and kind of, um, you know, Margaret is it's a very sad one and um, there are other ones again it, it in in you know it occurs on all sides and this is what i find fascinating as well about it that you just can't say it was it was the british who were doing this or that it was the republicans this is you know there are cases in in all of these um there again a very well-known one in particular was the um elizabeth uh, sorry eileen biggs in county tipperary is quite a well-known one Um, Again, um, and I'm giving you the transgressive examples.
1: Uh, All the
4: day. Absolutely. Um, But um, Eileen Biggs was, again, gang-raped by um, four members um, of of, um, the local IRA, uh, one of the leader of whom is commemorated on two monuments in different parts of the country. So these kinds of very difficult questions. um, In both, the reason I would mention both Eileen and Margaret is, again, and I've seen huge evidence of this, as well, with a lot of the women. Both of them um, suffered um, physically, horrendous physical injuries from what happened to them, obviously, but also psychologically. Um, Eileen and her husband went to England. Both her husband, who was there at the time, they had nervous breakdowns and never recovered. Margaret um, ended up in Castlebar. This is all documented in her file. It's really sad. You can look it up um, online, Margaret Doherty. And she died in 1928. Um, she was the youngest of nine, the only daughter. It's um, a really particularly sad, um, I think, example of that kind of transgressive kind of violence. So what I would say to you is... It, It's difficult to quantify. I can't say there were 100 women attacked in this way. I can't say if there were 5,000. I just don't know, because the default reaction, um, it it, it was silence, you know, was to really um, not speak about this. Um, But we know, and I know from just a little bit of the follow-up work I've done, particularly around Margaret, um, that there is still collective memory in the community, um, in the family, but it's very taboo. And I suppose my next part of the research is to think well, how do I take this forward now? Um, there's also a lot of difficulty with the sources. I mentioned this to the guys earlier. Uh, the court martial report is being held back. Um, you know, um, there's a difficulty with perpetrators. Perpetrators are rarely named, uh, never mind prosecuted. So, should we name the perpetrators? it's 100 years ago i would say yes this is a very difficult part of our history um it's a very difficult part of the revolutionary history but it's not one we can shy away from so i think the scale the exact scale 100 years later given what you talked about Fergal, that like conservative catholic state that we inherited that had just a totally um Ridiculous. I was trying to find a better word. Ridiculous attitude to sexuality and abuse. And um, the Carrigan report of 1931 uh, was shelved because it pointed out levels of incest in families, suggested things like the children were imagining the abuse, that the women, uh, you know, it would, would be bad for the men's careers if this came out. And um, so, so we have we have a hundred years to unpack there, and it is it's what I call the hard end of what we're talking about here. Yeah. It's not the high political history. It's not the sexy stuff. This is actually real-lived trauma, abuse, um, and I don't care if there was one case or a million. I think those stories. I think we owe it, um, you know, to those women in particular, um, that we we write back into the into the narrative, those perhaps more unsavory and difficult questions um, about the revolution. Yeah. Get in quick,
0: Niall. No, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not not
2: wishing to shy away from the 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 violence either. But I have a question for Dara and our Fergal. But uh, just alluding to Fergal, you mentioned there the um, the later uh, looking of colonial African and perhaps other countries to the
0: example of what happened in Ireland. I just wondered other than the military side of what happened in ireland to what extent if any was the the operation of the counter state in revolutionary ireland and uh, attempts to operate alternative government structures centrally or locally to what extent if any have you examined was that uh, example used uh, in in other imperial uh, colonies uh, I, I
2: think it was peter hart years ago who who who, who wrote that uh, Irish Republicans had almost fashioned the, um, the, the, the revolutionary template for anti-imperialist struggle in um, 1919, he talked about provisional governments, uh, guerrilla warfare, um, political mobilization, uh, international propaganda, mobilizing the diaspora and so on. But, and I think there's, there's something to that, that what happened in Ireland was very distinctive and, 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 and all history is unique and it was very, very successful. and. There's lots of evidence that um, uh, anti-imperialists throughout Asia and Africa and other places did look with great interest to Ireland. And, and going back to what the point that was made earlier, the outcome in 1921 impressed a lot of people outside Ireland more than it impressed anti-treaty Republicans as a kind of a, an achievement. But having said that, the thing that's really struck me, and this goes back to Linda's comment about thinking about how anti-imperialism was in some ways a bit airbrushed out of history, was that 1919 was an anti-imperialist year and and looking at what's happening in places like Egypt and India and so on, what's really I think apparent is how a lot of different nationalist groups were everywhere using the same kind of language, the same kind of rhetoric, the same kind of strategies, you know, albeit with with differences. So that that combination of kind of political mobilization, use of violence, international propaganda, uh, and in particular the claim to sort of self-determination based upon you know, the Wilsonian moment, that what, what I've been really struck by how actually, maybe Ireland was, a, was, was considerably less distinctive. Its path was less special that we think when we look at what else is happening in other places in 1919 and we're learning more, I guess, about how people, whether it's Del in America, <coughs> how actually these revolutionary movements rubbed against each other all the time and shared kind of strategies. So I've been kind of more impressed than that by than the idea of Ireland as a kind of leading, leading the way in, in, in the kind of anti-colonial you know, struggle. Speaking of, of
1: David Fitzpatrick, like one thing he, he mentioned in his book on Harry Boland, he kind of mentioned, kind of dismissed it in passing that Harry Boland was talking about creating an, a, a global IRB, an anti-imperial global IRB. Like sign me up for that, like. Yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, but and and I just thought that was that was a, that was a, that was fascinating. I don't know how developed it was, uh, but you, have you guys have you guys seen much of that?
3: Not specifically the IRB, but I will just
1: go back to that yeah. point briefly
3: because I think it links to it, the 1916 rising and the kind of the the miss. Misapplied term Sinn Fein rising. There is very much in what Fergus was saying this kind of an anti imperial moment, an anti imperial year as 1919. But Sinn Fein, the, the category, the brand Sinn Fein carried across languages. So, for example, Burmese nationalists wrote to Arthur Bryan in London saying, Burma has gone Sinn Fein. Indian nationals were saying they were going to establish a Congress along the Sinn Féin lines. And even in news reportage, which has been great for me and Virgil as well, I presume, like you're looking at foreign language um, newspapers and so the Sinn Féin title actually carries. So Sinn Féin becomes not only a representation of of this um, um, this, uh, advanced Irish nationalism, republicanism, physical force nationalism, but also uh, a a symbol or a totem for anti-colonial action of any kind in the post-war world and is therefore treated as such by not only British intelligence, but by the British state at large.
2: I think also the other thing that happens in 1919 is it's the year in which nationalist struggle goes global. So uh, I heard someone recently referring to Dávila sitting out the war of independence in America. That couldn't be more wrong. america was was just as much the front line as what was happening in Cork, and it, it's because you know you, you could you could leverage and you could use that kind of global audience to, to press. It goes back to the earlier question about why Britain conceded with relatively few fatalities, because they were getting absolutely monstered by the global press, and they just really couldn't construct an argument as to why, in the age of self-determination, they could uh, they could continue to rule Ireland against its clearly expressed democratic will. So that's for me, that's the revolutionary shift. It just becomes very difficult to make that argument.
0: Guys, I'm looking at, the, at the, the. We've been beaten by the clock again. Does anybody want to come in briefly? Uh, if not, uh, just to wrap up, Fergal, maybe just to, to wrap up, where's where's this all going? I know, apart from more domination, right? Uh, and, and by this publication, right? Uh, no, where is this, this approach leading us like? What's, what's next on the agenda?
2: Well, I mean, our our project is doing lots of work in the global, but I don't want to claim we have some kind of ownership of it. There's actually lots of scholars who are doing different things. So what what I would maybe say is we've... I think we've reached a situation whereby there's maybe a greater awareness of how we can look at different scales. We can look at the local, the national, the international, the global, and particularly what looking at the global is doing, which lots and lots of scholars are doing anyway, um, is that it sort of may, opens up new perspectives and old questions, like really straightforward questions like why, 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 why were Irish Republicans successfully? But also it, it opens up maybe new questions for us to think about. For example, something that's emerged a lot today that, we, that there isn't a lot written about, race. You know, yeah. How important is... I mean, Irish Republicans, as well as forming alliances with, say, Indian anti-imperialists, they also w- would, would speak to white audiences in America and say, why should we be the last white? people left unfree. so I think that the global maybe just just gives us a set of new questions and a set of new perspectives on old questions.
0: OK, I tell you, I, I'm going to wrap up there, right? Um, I just want to thank all our speakers, uh, Fergus McGarry, Darry Gannon, Linda Connolly, John Borganovo. Uh, you, the audience, a small audience, but uh, quality. Quality is what <laughs> we look for here. And the point is, this is recorded, so it's irrelevant how many people are here. I have to say, very, very excellent questions from the floor. Now, uh, next, uh, the next History Iron Head School will be in, uh, in Dublin, in the Ed- Edmund Burke Theatre in Trinity. Uh, this, is the, this is the commemoration that everyone's forgotten you know, it's 850 years since Strongbow came here, that's the big one so uh, the title of the next one will be 850 years of oppression question mark, from and Bun to Brexit and it looks like that's going to take another 850 years uh, to resolve so hope maybe to see uh, some of you there, thank you very much uh, for, for coming <laughs>